Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, July 9th, 2021. I'm John Pudhortz, the editor of Commentary. Uh, today is Noah Rothman's last day off. He'll be back on Monday with me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna mix things up and start with an anecdote. I just learned literally forty five seconds ago that Christine Rosen uh, knew Alexander Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> well, the, I wouldn't say knew. I was, yes. uh, we were we were talking about camp, summer camp experiences, and I had the great good fortune to go to a wonderful place called Kinhaven Music School in Vermont, starting when I was eleven. Um, and uh, the only other kid who was that age at the camp that summer was a, a piano player named Iggy, as he was known. So Iggy and I were sort of became friends. Iggy, of course, was a prodigy, which you could you immediately learned about him because when he played the piano, it was like a dream. I was not a prodigy on the bassoon, so I was not up to his musical caliber. But we would have concerts, and people's parents, if they lived in the New England area, would sometimes come to concerts. And so uh, about midway through the summer, Iggy's like, "Oh, my dad's coming. You should you should meet my dad." So we walk over to the corner of the concert hall, and there's this very austere-looking, older-looking man with a long beard. I was like, ah, I thought that was his granddad. So he introduced me, and you know, we we said our pleasantries. Uh, and uh, later, I mentioned to my dad when I called my parents on the payphone, like later that day, I said, "Oh, I met my friend Iggy's dad." He goes, "Iggy, what kind of name is that?" I, said, I think it's Russian. His name's Ignat, and you know, he, he, he has a really long Russian last name. My dad, of course, under sort of being a little more up to up to speed with current events than I was at age 11, said, find out what his last name is. So um, next time I called him, I said, oh, it's uh, Solzhenitsyn. And he goes, what? <laughs> and then he informed me that I had just met Russia's most famous distant and literary uh, uh, personage. And uh, I will say he was perfectly pleasant, though not friendly. Ignat was, is amazing. He's gone on to become a very uh, well-respected conductor and, and continues to perform uh, piano and really was a musical prodigy. But all from a kind of you know camp experience, um, it did prompt me later to, to read Solzhenitsyn's work and to sort of learn more about how he came to the country and, and ended up in Vermont. So it was it's just one of those weird historical moments where I was clearly the the kind of dim-witted Forrest Gump character in this story, but yes. um, the, yes. the camp was amazing. So, yes, uh, Buddy Hackett went to Abe's bar mitzvah. That is not true. That is not true. <laughs> oh no. Okay, yeah. wait. Sorry. Well, who 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 did come to your bar mitzvah? Uh, Buddy Rich. Oh, Buddy Rich. Okay, that's even better. Actually, Buddy Rich is better. But he, but but he didn't. But you know, the thing about Buddy Rich is that he wouldn't have to perform because he could only perform if he brought drums, right? He couldn't. Oh, he he performed. Oh, he did. Yeah, he performed at. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Dear well, Lord. When, when did I agree to discussing all this? Oh come on. <laughs> oh come on. I'll it's talk Abe's about Abe's confessional moment on the podcast. Oh, <laughs> yeah, John, you have the you have the you know the best uh, stories. Well, my I I I mean I have terrible. I have absolutely awful. So I mean, here here are my camp because I hated camp, but I'm now I'm I'm very much part of a camp family. My uh my wife's parents met at Camp Ramon, Wisconsin in 1948 or 1949. He was a counselor. She was a camper. It was the first year of the camp. They ended up getting married. My father-in-law ended up running Camp Ramon, Wisconsin, and then the Camp Ramon Network uh, as his vocation. Um, and my father was a dramatics counselor at Camp Ramon, Wisconsin in 1949 and shared a sleeping porch with my father-in-law 
And they did not see each other again until the, uh, as we say, the machatonim, the in-laws met uh, after Ayal and I got engaged. Uh, so that would have been 52 years later, something like that. Um, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents started a camp also in Wisconsin, uh, out of, out of St. Paul, Minnesota called Herzl camp, which is still going. Um, and Herzl camp, uh, like Camper Ma started as part of the sort of Zionist fervor, uh, of American Jews in the 1940s. Uh, these camps originally required that uh, the children who came speak only in Hebrew as an effort to sort of create the conditions under which Hebrew would become the national Jewish language. Follow, um, that is no longer the case and never really worked to begin with anyway. But my father had to write plays in Hebrew. He wrote, I guess, a sketch, really, but he wrote a play a week. And uh, desperately, I tried to get the, at some point, I tried to get the Ramah management in Chicago to look through files and see if there were any of these plays survived in a filing cabinet or something like that, but they have been lost to the, to the mist of time. Anyway, my grandparents, Camp Herzl Camp, uh, was, uh, is notable in the annals of pop culture history because it was where a, a kid from Northern Minnesota, uh, from a, from a small town in Northern Minnesota called Hibbing named Bobby Zimmerman was sent by his parents to get some Jewish education, uh, in the summers. And that of course, uh, Bobby Zimmerman became Bob Dylan. So he was a, uh, he was a Herzl camper. Uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen came up from the Twin Cities to go to a summer camp. And I believe Joel Cohen once made a joke that uh, going to Camp Herzl, uh, Herzl Camp made him an anti-Semite. Um, Thomas Friedman went there. So I apologize uh, to anybody who has had the misfortune of having to read a Tom Friedman column. Um, and Abe Foxman, the head of the, uh, the ADL and, and me and my sister Ruthie. So, uh, those are, those are among the many, uh, Herzl camp, uh, campers. Um, the most celebrated Ramah camper now, uh, is Ben Platt, the star of Dear Evan Hansen, which is, uh, uh on Broadway, one of the great Broadway performances of all time. Now, uh, made into a movie that I think is going to be on Netflix in September. So the, so that that's, he went to Ramon, Ojai, California. There, there are something like eight or 10 Ramaz in the United States. My two kids are there right now. Two of my, my, my two younger kids are there right now. And my, my, my older daughter, my oldest daughter is on a six weeks pro program in Israel run by Rama. That was, was very touch and go about whether or not it was going to, happen uh, like the week before she was set to take off israel uh, reintroduced travel restrictions and so there was a whole you know to, to, to fall to all we <laughs> one of the funniest things we had to do is you know we had she had to show her vaccination she had to show this she had to show that and then we actually had to take a document <laughs> to a notary to get notarized that affirmed that she was not a terrorist uh, required by the by the israeli government so that she did not, you know, see. They put a lot of faith in notaries, don't they? I, I, I'm <laughs> telling you, I'm telling you right little... now. Yeah. Yeah. You fooled them, huh? Yeah. Who boy. So yeah, that's the, but uh, Abe, this is not a camp. Abe story is not a camp story. We heard some of this last year when we did our, uh, you know, our, our life, life histories, but, uh, but okay. You don't have to talk about it. Even though yours is better than ours. Dave is a man of mystery. 
I mean, uh, you know, I have, I have, I did in my life uh, meet Buddy Hackett several many times, but I, okay, I, yes. I don't know what okay. I don't. I have enough. I don't have much to relate about it. No, you don't have to talk about Buddy Hackett. It's not Buddy Hackett. No. It's the sort. What Buddy Hackett represents is well, the Ur, the Ur Buddy Hackett. Also, did you have a camp experience, Abe? A summer camp experience? No good ones. <laughs> That's most people's answer, actually. It's a weird thing. Summer camp can be, you either love it or you loathe it and have, yeah. you know, yeah. terrible stories to tell. Oh, my, my final summer camp story is that, um, when I was, when I was eight for reasons that, um, you know, have, have never been spelled, spelled out by my, by my, my parents who, um, who are, um, well known to listeners of this podcast who do not know that they have a wacky and bizarre, uh, and, um, irrational side decided that i needed to go to summer camp uh so my, none of my sisters have gone to summer camp really but um i had to go to summer camp i was eight years old and they sent me to northern ontario from new york just to give you a sense of um i, I got on a plane alone uh from LaGuardia to toronto was picked up and then went on a bus to northern ontario where i cried for eight weeks basically um you know, because, you know, being, I don't know, I, I don't know how far it was, but it's a place called Halliburton, Ontario. Uh, the funniest thing about this camp was that uh, it was said to be on Lake Placid, uh, but Lake Placid was actually not the name of the lake. The lake's actual name was Lake Hurricane, but the camp had rebranded it for its own literature as Lake Placid in order to, you know, make sure that worried parents did not did not think that, you know, their kids were going to be drowned in a hurricane. Anyway, this camp is called white pine. It's still there. And, um, and, uh, 12 years later or something like that, I was at a movie theater watching the first Bill Murray movie meatballs. And, uh, and at the end of the movie, it says Phil, you know, which uh, I, I'd been there, you know, so, so it turned out meatballs was filmed at camp white pine. So meatballs, of course, I think the most famous, summer camp movie aside from Friday the 13th, which I think is emotionally more resonant to me than meatballs, uh, as a story of how, if you go to camp, you actually, you know, camp Crystal are, at least, Lake. Yes. Yeah, are, are at least emotionally murdered, if not, uh, if not physically murdered. Um, but yeah, so I went to the camp and meatballs. That's my other, that's my other camp story. Uh, not that it's much of a camp story. Okay. So, so now that we have dispensed with, um, Although again, like meeting Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that is a that is like you know that in is retrospect, a world, world yes. historical. I had no idea. I was meeting Iggy's I mean, dad. That's yeah, I all mean, I knew. Like meeting one of the you know ten greatest men of the twentieth century is not nothing. Yes, I mean I, I think you could probably easily make the case that he was there, if not higher. Uh, you know, in the list of. Uh, of, of, of great men and great men who, you know, uh, were fundamentally misunderstood, complicated, highly complicated, complex figure, not, not, not without his own moral ambiguities, but, um, but also someone whose, uh, impact and importance, like has not faded one tiny bit. No, I mean, you know, and, uh, I mean, in some ways, of course, what you have in, in, in Vladimir Putin is an effort to, uh, Solzhenitsynize the Soviet Union in some fashion to take what was, uh, you know, this, um, a universalist experiment in, in, you know, in, in, in tyrannical domination and make it, uh, and, and add, 
uh, or layer on or, 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 or consciously fill it with Russian nationalism as a, as a substitute for, uh, internationalist, uh, evangelism, uh, on the communist front. And I mean, it's maybe unfair to Solzhenitsyn to say, cause I, I don't think he believes that, you know, empire <clears throat> was, was ende- endemic to the Russian character. That was Richard Pipe's idea. That was, that was even Tolstoy's idea. Uh, Tolstoy, of course, being maybe the first great anti-imperialist, uh, you know, whoever lived, um, and a you know great opponent of of Russian imperialism in the 1870s yet, which is a, a major theme in in Anna Karenina. But um, but but anyway, so yeah, Solzhenitsyn. You know, it's very hard to understand what it is that Putin is up to if you really want to follow Putin without understanding the, the this idea of Russianness that was very much a part of Solzhenitsyn's ideological makeup. Anyway. Can I just point out, by yes. the way, that your mention of Tolstoy being an anti-imperialist, it's one of the things that drives me absolutely bonkers when the the kind of woke uh, destruction of the Western canon and the claims about, you know, dead white men not having anything to speak to the present moment. Ironically, a lot of the people they would they would cast out of the of the canon because they happen to be uh, dead white men had a lot to say about the arguments um, that they now claim to embrace, such as anti-imperialism. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean... I mean, Tolstoy was a very modern, you know, one of the things is if you, a very peculiar person with very, you know, the maybe the greatest literary mind the world has ever seen, but a person of very uh, confused, complex, and and often contradictory um, ideas and idea set. But, you know, but, but somebody who was so, so struggled with his own Christian faith in the whole question of your own personal behavior and your own ideas and how they have to comport with, you know, the teachings of Jesus that he, he went down some very interesting paths, including the idea of having had 13 children and an unknowable number of children, uh, with, uh, workers on his estate plantation, whatever you want to call Yasna Apollyana, his, his ancestral home, uh, then decided that sex was was evil and and sexual. Yes, a moment of silence for Tolstoy's wife, please. Like this is one of those. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, Sonia Tolstoy. There, there is actually a very good movie about Tolstoy's last days called The Last Station with Christopher Plummer and Helen mm-hmm. Mirren. Helen Mirren playing Sonia and the. Yeah, she's amazing in that movie. Yeah, and that movie is about how Tolstoy. You know, it's a, it also redolent of of sort of modern times because it's all about how. Tolstoy ended up being sort of taken over and run by these, uh, you know, fanatical uh, disciples who whose whole effort was to separate him from his family so they could control the the the, the great man. Anyway, the last station. If you're looking for a uh, you know a good a good movie to see. Uh, anyway, okay, so uh, let's take a break uh, and then we'll get to serious stuff. Not that Tolstoy's not serious, but... I take yeah. summer camp very seriously, too. Okay, so. there you go. Well, you know, um, one thing we didn't have when I was in summer camp was the internet, and the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, as I can tell you from having kids in summer camp and how we intersect with the internet as parents and as kids at the at summer camp. But security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more all in one easy to use app. 
Most credit card companies do a good job of protecting you against fraudulent purchases, but what if a scammer files for unemployment in your name or if social media accounts are hacked or as protection goes well beyond your credit card? Between your photos, finances, devices, and connections, your world is more online than ever. You may have security systems in place in real life, but what about your online life? Aura can sound the alarm if your digital presence is at risk. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. It's easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And right now, Aura has a limited time offer for our listeners to get early access in three free months when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get access before anyone else and three months for free for a limited time. That's A-U-R-A.com slash commentary. So uh, guys, Joe Biden spoke yesterday for half an hour about the decision to pull out of Afghanistan. Somebody saw reason uh, in the White House and decided that the idea of pulling out on on the 20th anniversary of September 11th might not be the best PR move or uh, <laughs> resonance. And so Biden announced uh, that he was that American, all American forces, except the 650 who are staying to protect the embassy in the airport will be, uh, will be leaving by August 30th. What did you guys make of the speech? Well, uh, he was defensive um, as you would expect, because uh, it, the, the, the initial, announcement of the policy and the, and the withdrawal from uh, Bagram Air Base has not been celebrated in, in the way that perhaps uh, the administration um, had anticipated. It hasn't been exactly, you know, slammed across the board, but, but questions have come up from the, from the start of the, of the announcement of this policy about, um, about the, the wisdom and what it portends. Um, so he was he was quite defensive, and um, I was not actually the least bit impressed by uh, what he said. Uh, I thought he 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 sort of um, he made some very dishonest kind of um, points about uh, when he got dramatic about saying, "For those who would say that we should stay on, I ask you, how many more Americans, or how, how many more lives, and for how long?" Um, as something that Noah has pointed out. Uh, recently on this podcast, um, there have not been uh, a whole lot of lives, American lives lost in Afghanistan uh, in recent years. Um, it's not, it doesn't, it's, that's no longer a sort of operable complaint as it was in say, oh, I don't know, 2003 or four or, or whatever it was, you know? Um, so I, I think, um, I, I don't think he did a great job. He said things like, uh, we haven't lost yet, or the mission is not lost yet, which is, which is really yeah. great. 
Well, that that was what I picked up. The, the the wish, the wishful thinking that was baked into that. A lot of what he was saying was almost insulting. If you've been following, even in a in a general sense, what's been happening in Afghanistan and the the reemergence of uh, the Taliban. Um, which, on a side note, when did when did the media start calling Taliban uh, representatives officials, as if they're like a a state that functions like a, anyway? That that's been bothering me too. But I thought that Biden's. Um, weird declaration of instead of saying declaring victory because clearly they want to avoid the the sort of uh you know declaring victory moment because things are not great there as we're leaving but they also want to uh say we didn't lose and that again there's a cognitive dissonance in the in the messaging there because if he's, he's saying well we didn't lose we're leaving and now we hope they all find a way to find peace like there's just nothing reassuring about any part of that that reasoning uh, our friend Eli Lake has a really uh, uh, superb column at, uh, at Bloomberg uh, uh, this morning. Uh, yesterday, I guess he published it called Afghans will no longer choose their own government. And here's here's what, what he says, which I think is very important. Uh, Biden, as I think we know uh, from accounts of the Obama administration, was an opponent of the Obama surge, uh, which I think was 2009. If you remember the Obama surge, uh, it ended up being, I think it was 30,000 troops and there was, and, and he promised at the, the, the minute that he, uh, committed them, uh, that he was going to pull them out in 18 months. So it was like a surge where you told the enemy how long they had to go and sort of like hide until the surge was over. But Biden was opposed even to that and had his own, uh, Biden loved, loves the, Interestingly imperialist notion, uh, very much akin to what happened after World War One, of America going around and splitting countries up into three. Like he wanted to split Iraq into three countries, and he, I believe, if I remember right, he wanted to split Afghanistan into three co- countries, um, and, uh, and that wasn't really a going concern. But so he he has had his own idea set about what to do uh, in Afghanistan for uh, more than a decade. And, uh, and one of the things he said, which is, I think the animating thought behind this pullout was no nation has ever unified Afghanistan. No nation, he said. And as Eli writes, so what would be the point of staying another year, a decade to fight for a government that will never be able to rule a deeply divided nation? Um, the answer is that's not true. And that's the point of Eli's column that for 20 years now, or maybe a little, I mean, 18 years now, Afghanistan has had a unified government, has a central elected government. It's corrupt, you know, it's inefficient, maybe it's not great, but it has a central unified government. What it has is an irredentist force that had ruled it, was kicked out, that wants back in to run Afghanistan as a unified nation under its control. This is not, oh, look, let it, let them go back and they'll all have their own regions and there'll be a lawyer jirga here and a lawyer jirga there and they'll have a this meeting and that meeting and it'll just be old Afghanistan the way it always was before Westerners unwisely tried to dominate it, right? First of all, we didn't want to dominate it. It was Russia, the, the Soviet Union that wanted to dominate it or or others who have wanted to dominate it. We needed to go there to extirpate 
al-Qaeda and remove the government that housed al-Qaeda as a, mes- as, a, as a message that we were not going to tolerate anyone housing forces that sought to destroy or, you know, or, or wound or injure the United States. What we wanted was to leave the place better than we found it. I mean, that was sort of all, right? It was that Colin Powell, you break it, you own it doctrine. If we were going to go in, do what we could to extirpate, get rid of the Taliban regime, get rid of, uh, get rid of uh, Al Qaeda, that we would that we would then also be there to try to leave in place a more functional government that would also have the the ancillary benefit of not allowing the Taliban back in. And so our our mission there for the last twenty years has been twofold and um it's only a failure because the taliban haven't given up and why haven't the taliban given up because they 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 understood that we were inconstant i mean that uh, in fact we weren't inconstant i mean you had republicans and democrats you had you had bush a republican you had obama democrat and you had trump whatever trump is i mean you know with without a republican foreign policy who would not pull out when all was said and done. You know, Obama wanted to and then didn't. Or he didn't want to, right? He said he wanted to win in Afghanistan and extirpate and get rid of bin Laden and all of that. Although bin Laden, of course, was gotten rid of in Pakistan, not in... He's, <clears throat> Obama said that when he when he ran, uh, but then when he got into office, he kind of wanted to pull out. I mean, the the surge ended up being... I think, if I, if I remember correctly, um, David Petraeus all gave him like three plans and he chose the sort of uh, medium one, the the the, the one yeah. in the middle for the sort of um, you know not the most uh, forces, not not the fewest, but very much with an eye toward getting out. I mean, right. But well, in the that, end, right. But in the end, it was more caught. Co- it looked yeah. more politically whatever strategically costly to pull out than to stay. Yeah. Yeah. The idea being that a president who uh, someone who's running for president who hasn't seen the full detail of the intelligence briefings about what's going on in Afghanistan might you know, glibly say, oh, we're going to get out of there. And then when they actually hold power and see their responsibility in that region and the dangers in that region, if they do pull out, they they rethink it. But I mean, I wish Noah was here today because he could do a, his uh, general rant about Biden's grasp of foreign policy. But we know exactly what's going to happen. It's happening literally right now. The Taliban now controls, I think, two or three border crossings already. I mean, they're, they're immediately moving to do what everyone predicted they would do if America announced a withdrawal. And to act, again, I think this is why it was so frustrating to listen to Biden kind of happy talk a lot of this and, and, and assume that peace will reign. I mean, there's no way that that should be the operating assumption. And he didn't give any reassurance to the American people that any sort of terrorist groups that might use Afghanistan as a base to target domestic uh, targets here in the U.S., that that was under control either. I just, there was nothing in that talk to give reassurance to people who have been following this crisis. Well, yeah, among the, those things he said that did give reassurance, he said, um, look, this isn't like the fall of Saigon. Um, it's just that I was advised that once we announced we were going to get out, it would be better to get out quickly. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Not at all like the fall of Saigon. Yeah. No, totally different. <laughs> no, but what, 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 what he said was there aren't going to be any helicopters on the roof of the embassy lifting people up out of the, off the, out away, away from the embassy. And you know what? We'll we'll see, right? We'll, we'll see. I mean, we're not leaving a huge force to protect the embassy. Now, granted, like you know, I mean, there was <laughs> there were a lot of soldiers 
protecting the U.S. Embassy, but everyone was supposed to leave on that date, so it was like crazy. Um, and and uh, you know, I I hope not. I mean, I hope that we don't have to we don't have to do a rescue mission for the Americans still in the embassy if the place is overrun by the Taliban. But we we don't know that for well, for certain. And what for setting the Americans who are there right now aside? What about all of the Afghanistan uh, people who helped support America's mission in Afghanistan? There is many of them want to get out. Many of them are going to be slaughtered by the Taliban. There's going to be a real effort to. Uh, Maybe again to happy talk or ignore that here at home domestically, but so many people help support that mission, not just translators, not just people who work directly with the military, but all of the support staff who worked out of their own offices and embassies in the Afghanistan government that gave real support to, to what was going on there. They are, they now all have targets on their backs as well. I mean, he did talk about uh, accelerating or changing the regulations or whatever on this kind of refugee status so that so that the people who were who were directly employed by the you know by, by the american mission uh and there i think are about eighteen thousand of them can get out if they want to get out so i mean that he did address it but you're right i mean uh and again not to use vietnam as as the just the the easiest analogy but um the the pattern once the u.s pulled out of south vietnam and the north took over was that everybody and anybody in the South who had been seen to have been related in any ancillary way to the American mission was sent to a re-education camp. Um, you know, two million people or something like that were placed in re-education camps where they were taken away from their families, forced to work in rice paddies, you know, um, instructed in, in this case would be Taliban, you know, fundamentalist uh, Islamic precepts. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, who, and, and they ended up, you know, people ended up fleeing on leaky boats into the South China sea. That was the, the derivation of the Vietnamese refugee crisis that by the way, the odd thing, and this might be true of the Afghanis as well, like um, the Vietnamese presence in the United States that came as a result of what happened there has been an unalloyed benefit for the United States. The Vietnamese refugees who came here made lives, have had children and now grandchildren, and and uh, and you know have been an incredible net plus uh, for the United States. But you know, by the other weird thing, and I, I just. Biden made this particular point of saying, we're not going to abandon the women and the girls and women. Uh, okay. So it's apparently okay to abandon the men because they're men, but the girls and women, because of course the Taliban, you know, famously would not educate, you know, refused to provide any education for women. Or in fact, I don't know, shot people who taught girls how to read stuff like that. Um, uh, you know that, that we're gonna we're gonna do whatever we could to help them. Well, what on what on you know how you know what we can do to help them? Not leave. Is That's what the we thing. The, pan, the pandering to his domestic political base in that speech was was not at all subtle. I mean, it's like, oh, don't worry, feminist. We still we still care about Afghan girls. We still you know you know. I'm surprised he didn't invoke Malala. Like it's like, look, this is the only way to protect those women is to have some presence and stabilizing force in the region. Leaving that. He's he is abandoning those women and girls. And yeah, part, I mean, or yeah, go ahead. Well, you, know, you know, part of the thing about about our having been in Afghanistan as long as we have been is that there are uh, young women and girls there 
who's for their entire lives have actually never known life under the Taliban. Um, and sadly, they're going to find out about it. I mean, you know, people probably, I mean, my guess is that the people who listen to this podcast remember that this was a, a nightmare regime. I mean, like a horror movie nightmare regime. Um, uh, marry, a, you know, know, like marry eight year old girls off to old, you know, goat herders or whatever. Yeah. Have, have public executions in, in, in stadiums, um, you know, like sort of like the, uh, like the Roman Coliseum. I mean, you know, any, anybody who forgets this can just go read, uh, Hosseini's the kite runner or, or go see, see the movie about what it was like to, 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 to live under the Taliban. I mean, this was, this was a, you know, just the, just the, the, the wholesale destruction of all cultural provenance in the country, including those, the, these, um, 1400 year old Buddhist statues, uh, in Afghanistan that were, that were, that were leveled by the Taliban because they were not, you know, they were not Muslim and were representational and just, you know, these were young psychotic fanatic totalitarians uh, the worst people you could possibly imagine and granted it's 20 years later my guess is that the taliban i think or you read about this that you know it's 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 a different movement now it you know it doesn't quite have the doesn't quite have the same millenarian uh, quality to it but nonetheless like these are among the this is a, this was an absolutely terrifying regime. Uh, it's not like relieving, you know, and it's like Nicaragua. Then, so the Nicaraguan leaders, they were communists and then they stopped and then they started. And then, uh, uh, like, th- this was terrifying. The thought of living under th- this regime uh, was terrifying. It was, it was like a combination of the French Revolution under under the Jacobins and, and, you know, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini and I, I don't know what, I mean, it was just, you know, horrifying. Uh, so, uh, that's what we have, you know, and again, the question is what, what is the, the opportunity cost? This is a very bloodless way to talk about American forces committed to a foreign, you know, to, to, you know, to, to foreign lands but we're going to learn in the next year what the opportunity cost was between leaving and staying. As long as the media stay on the story, like someone's going to, it's going to have to get covered. So we know what goes on there. Well, and if, and if the Democrats are worried about how rising domestic crime rates uh, are going to impact them in the next election, uh, an uptick in, in the ability of, of, terrorist organizations overseas to strike here is also going to be very bad for them. I mean, this is, but I, I, to the point about the media, I am extremely uh, pessimistic that this is going to be covered. Although, you know, the the foreign war, the foreign correspondents at at the major outlets generally are uh, skeptical of any administration's uh, efforts over there. So hopefully there'll be at least a few who will continue to cover this closely, but it, it, there's not a lot of evidence that they'll do that considering how they've uh, protected Biden's domestic agenda so far. 
There'll, there'll um, be no shortage of horror stories to cover, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, the question. As long as long as they are coverable, right. you know. And of course, but one of the one of the things is that, uh, you know, the the Taliban were ousted in two thousand one. It's now twenty twenty one, and uh, obviously, it's a lot easier to get news out through you know uh, unofficial channels than it was then. Um, they didn't seem to mind getting covered as I recall <laughs> um, when, when uh, back then, but they probably will now uh, or try to shut down the internet or wh- whatever they'll, whatever it is that they'll do, but it's not, it's not so, it's not so simple um, guys, you know uh, the very astute financial columnist uh, for macroeconomics columnist for the New York times, Neil Irwin has a piece today uh, called the bond market is telling us to worry about growth, not inflation. I read in this piece uh, a shift, a, a potential beginning shift in the um, in the conventional wisdom that you know inflation is the greatest threat to our future prosperity, um, and uh, w- the opening of a conversation about whether or not what the bond market is up to uh, indicates a fear about long term deflation not inflation. And if you were listening on this podcast a couple of months ago, I think it was a couple of months ago, though it may have been a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember now, you would have heard this very same argument from David Bonson, head of the Bonson Group, publisher of the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, who has been beating the drum for the idea that the bond market is telling us that we are heading for a period of long-term economic uh, sort of, um, you know, a, a Japan-like economic doldrums and that that is what we should be preparing for. And if David's right, and if Neil Irwin is indicating a shift in the, in the conventional wisdom, uh, you would have been there before you would have known about this months ago. If you had been subscribing to dividendcafe.com and the dctoday.com from the Bonson group, where I get a lot of my wisdom about what's going on on the day-to-day, uh, you know, behavior of the markets and the interplay of government and, and, and the markets, uh, go subscribe, go to dividendcafe.com right now and subscribe. And you will be in the forefront of understanding and being aware of the failure of the ideas that make up the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and market industry uh, and management industry. That's the Monson group, $3 billion under management by coastal management, financial services firm run by David Bonson publisher of dividendcafe.com and the DC today.com go there now. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you guys a question about uh, we we you know the, the back to the obsession on COVID. Um, so uh, the Delta variant stuff is worrisome. The numbers, the case numbers are up. Uh, they're kind of double. They're they're getting close to double where they were even a week ago. New cases, but I note that uh, the death toll. And again, it's like horrible to talk this way because it seems so bloodless. But that, you know, the New York Times is reporting 15, 16, 17,000 new cases a day. But the death toll is around 130, 140 a day. 
So if you do the math, 130 or 140 a day over 365 days is about 50,000 deaths a year from COVID. And that is flu numbers. Remember, this is where we got to the whole thing about how it was just flu number. Like when people said we were overreacting uh, last spring, it was the flu kills 60,000 people. This will kill 60,000 people. Why are we shutting you know the world down because of this? And then, of course, there are 4 million people dead around the world. There are 600 and, uh, 620,000 people dead in the United States from covid and again, even if you think that that number is inflated, so let's just say that it's 500,000 dead from COVID, uh, what what we were hoping was that it, it, it would be a flu and it wasn't a flu. But if it's, but if it's, but if it, if we get to the point and assuming what we're seeing here is that the severity of the, the severity of the cases is not leading to people die, you know, that the severity level is lower because people are just dying from it less and less and less. At some point it's a flu. And then we, the entire conversation that we're having is, is wrong, is, 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 is wildly misguided because then we're talking about using prevention methods against something that we don't need to prevent under extraordinary circumstances. Well, this is going to be the challenge, right? Moving from an, from the pandemic mindset to the seasonal flu mindset, that's going to take a, it's going to take a year, I think. And it's going to take, I think that's why the insistence on continued vaccination is good. I think it's important that we're already discussing the FDA had a statement um, out recently, yesterday, I think, or the CDC about uh, boosters. Like They're already talking about if and when we need booster shots for people who are already vaccinated, what that might look like, how they have to get the supply to the levels it needs to be at. That's all good. That is what we should be talking about. But to, you know, for people who follow the flu every year, you know that there are years that are much worse than others. There are years where they get the vaccination cocktail good, a good cocktail where it protects most of the variants and years where they don't. We will, I think, get to that point with COVID. It'll just become part of that mix every season. But the mindset of this is extremely deadly and unusual and not a flu, we were told that for over a year. It's going to be hard to let that go. And I think understandable that it'll be difficult, but we have to do it. We ha- we need, again, we talked about this yesterday, but the public health messaging from our officials needs to start discussing it in that way, um, not in the way we have for the past year. I mean, it's, it is hard to think of... Um very deadly things as uh, not deadly or less deadly after all. I mean, there's, there's, there are very few similarities between the two things I'm about to discuss. But if you take, for example, um, you know, like HIV, um, people can, it's, it's very sort of um, survivable now um, uh, with, with drugs and, you know, with uh, medication. Um, but it's still very much thought of, um, in, in terms of, uh, um, a very, very deadly, um, virus because it is, and it's, and it is abroad, um, uh, you know, especially, and it is, if you, if you don't, if you don't take the, take, take the medicine, but so, you know, the, the, those, the, 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 the idea of, of the way these things can terrorize a population doesn't just vanish. Right. Well, and there's no, and we, we've gotten out of the habit in the last year, under, again, understandably, of having anything to compare COVID to. So actually 
you know, every time someone eats a massive greasy hamburger with French fries, they're putting themselves at risk of a heart attack, which kills is what kills most people. cancer, heart attacks and diseases. Lifestyle diseases actually still kill more people in this country. But we don't think of it that way. Car accidents kill a lot of people in this country. We don't tally the daily toll unless you happen to be in an industry that needs to do that. So we we, we lack context for understanding risk and death in this country and always have. Um, so that's part of it as well. So as you guys know, we published a big piece by Jim Meggs in, in our June issue called Thank God for Big Pharma, right? Which is about how the, the remarkable development of the mRNA vaccines in particular uh, is a, you know, is a sort of world historical life-changing, life-saving event that we, under other circumstances, we would have immense gratitude for. But of course, Big Pharma is um, is a classic uh, liberal bugaboo enemy of Bernie Sanders and others who think that they're just trying to suck off the public uh, wheel. And, and then I noted uh, yesterday, uh, I made the uh, strangely switching channels. I hit my old friend Mark Stein on the seven o'clock hour on the Fox News channel, um, ho- uh, taking the place of whoever it was that had that show that they have these rotating hosts on. And uh, he was interviewing Michelle Bachman. So this was like some kind of weird, you know, return to the, I don't know, 2008 or 2012 or something. And the Chiron, I didn't really catch the most of the conversation till the end, but the Chiron said, uh, Pfizer, uh, Pfizer earning billions from COVID, something like that. And apparently they were talking about Pfizer's approach to the FDA for the approval of a booster shot against the Delta variant. Okay. I'm bringing this up only to say that I assume that Pfizer needs FDA approval for a booster shot. Pfizer is preparing a booster shot in case the Delta variant requires a booster shot. According to the CDC yesterday, all their relevant evidence suggests that a booster shot as yet is not necessary or will not, will not protect you much more or whatever. Um, But I mean, you can't do it from a standing start. So Pfizer, which should have all of our gratitude says, okay, we really, you know, should let's seek approval for a booster shot in case that's necessary and apparently the CDC, which we can trust or not trust or whatever, says based on what we can see, it's not necessary yet. But there's going to be yet another. There is this the shift from the left hating big pharma to the right hating big pharma is yet another incredibly depressing political event here. I mean, so now Mark Stein, one of the most sophisticated people on earth, is pissing all over Pfizer because it's making money off the off the coronavirus vaccine well, simply this- because the right has decided that the vaccination regime is some liberal imposition on the rest of us well he he might uh, and those who think like him might have to change their tune because the the one of the big items on Biden's schedule today is a big announcement about regulation and how, you know, economy wide, the Biden administration is going to, as they say in Orwellian uh, terms, increase competition by regulating every aspect of the business world in the U.S. So it'll be really fascinating to watch. Big Pharma is part of that, right? That's an inside big tech, big pharma. There there are a lot of industries banking that the Biden administration's progressive, uh, the pressure that's been put on the administration by the progressive wing of the party has been demanding much more uh, regulation of. And he's 
I'll, it'll be, I'm curious to see how much he gives them in this, in this executive order, but that might, I hope, turn some of these Republicans who've gone a little bonkers about big pharma back to some sense of reality. One, one, one hopes. I just think that it is, you know, it is, it is, first of all, just to make this clear, the amount of money that Pfizer is making, I, I didn't really understand this, but the amount of money that Pfizer is going to make on the vaccine, Pfizer is a, con- is a company that makes close to $200 billion a year. And apparently we're talking here about less than a tenth of that. So of course, that's good. You know, I mean, that's, you want a product that, you know, improves your bottom line by 10% in a year. Uh, and and particularly because it's good because they didn't have to spend seven years in development on it and spend the billions of dollars that it costs usually to bring a drug to market. But it's not the be-all and end-all of Pfizer. Like, Pfizer is not in – there's no reason to look at Pfizer saying, uh, okay, let's think about a third shot uh, and say, oh, well, they're just trying to – you know, they're trying to gouge us get us to take unnecessary medication like that's that's saying that if you say that in earnest then uh you are being foolish and if you say it because you're trying to make a you're 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 making some weird you're expanding on this populist message about how the entire year and a half uh that we've uh, lived through was some kind of liberal plot to control our lives uh, is terrible. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is like some kind of intellectual dark age to look at this, you know, uh, incredible advance that may have amazing positive consequences in the next generation in terms of other applications of the MRNA technology, that which is only like ten years old, right? I mean, BioNTech only started in twenty ten or twenty eleven or something like that. I mean, this is a new approach but, to <clears throat> disease cure. Yeah, something that continues to confuse me here is that to see this as a part of the uh, the populist wave on the right, which it is, um, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me because Trump was not anti big pharma. I mean, he talked about drug prices, but he talked about the fantastic job that these genius geniuses at these companies were doing in, 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 you know, getting this stuff done. But I don't think he's saying it now, right? He said it as long as he was president. And now, now he is very conscious that his supporters are not feeling this way and that they, they, they seem to be, hardening their stance about how they were sold a bill of goods in relation to, you know, and of course all that other weird stuff about how the Gates foundation put micro chips in the, in the vaccine. And I don't know. I mean, to, to speak specifically to Pfizer, like their big drugs, I think the patents expire, but Lipitor, you know, they, they have a lot of drugs like Lipitor. They have, a, they actually have been in the vaccination. I think their most productive, most profit, some of their most profitable drugs are forms of vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccinations that your kids have to get every year before school. They, they, been in this business for a long time and almost every american has probably used a pfizer product at some point in their life and there hasn't been this same sort of weird backlash so it is it is 
strange to me that they and 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 again the covid will be profitable for that company but it isn't by any means as you said earlier john they don't need it to survive they're doing quite well without it yeah uh guys let's talk about uh tommy john as we as we enter uh as we enter the hottest of the summer months uh tommy john has new apollo underwear it's most advanced and newest underwear yet with a performance Grade dry release fabric blend exclusive to Tommy John. It's it's the firm's latest comfort inv- innovation. You can't get it anywhere else. It's proven to keep you drier and up to seven degrees cooler than regular cotton underwear. And this is why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Apollo underwear soft supportive stretches for the perfect fit every day and is available up to size four XL. With over fifteen million pairs sold, men across America love Tommy John underwear. I'm wearing one pair right now, just to let you know. So I'm not I'm not just talking, I'm not just reading a script. I mean, I am reading a script, but I'm also wearing a pair of Tommy John underwear. And like all Tommy John underwear, Apollo comes with the best pair you'll ever wear. Or it's free guarantee. Tommy John's new Apollo men's underwear is high end for your rear end. Yeah, I didn't write that. I am reading that. And you can't get them anywhere else. Right now, get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. Go to TommyJohn.com slash commentary for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash commentary. See site for details. Uh, what was I going to say? I was going to, what was I going to say? I was going to say, if you like stupid science fiction, you should watch the Tomorrow War on the, uh, on Amazon, um, a lot of people are, are are running it down on Twitter, as far as I can tell. But I really enjoyed it. It is dumb, and it is like all time travel movies. A time travel movie where you're like, well, why don't they just go back ten further years? And then there's and a then, line that explains the weird, that explains it, it, that. Yeah, doesn't yeah. really. My one yeah. of my I watched yeah. it with my sons, and my son who's interested yeah. in physics was like, that is not possible. Yeah, but no, it's, I, I wouldn't say it, yeah. dumb. It's silly. It's like silly, it's silly. and fun. It's silly. silly. It's yeah. silly and fun, and actually yeah. unexpectedly touching. I would yes. say. Uh, but so th- that's a thing. If you if you don't mind that, that's that's a that's a good thing to watch. I do want to talk about one thing. There is a documentary called Summer of Soul. Uh, it's on Hulu. It's pro- I will bet you right now that it wins the Oscar for best documentary next year. Uh, it was made by uh, the drummer of the Roots, the the leader of the J- Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon band Questlove, Amir Thompson. Uh, and uh, somebody found videotapes, uh, filmed in 1969 of a cultural festival in a park in Harlem called Mount Morris Park, uh, now called Marcus Garvey Park, uh, where, uh, sort of every Sunday acts, uh, came and performed on a stage for a couple of hours. And, um, the whole movie makes this very portentous point that this was the black Woodstock, but no one was interested in it. It was forgotten in the midst of time. It was one of the great cultural events in history. And, you know, uh, such, such, uh, such noted, uh, historians and trustworthy sources of public history, like Al Sharpton, uh, and, and Jesse Jackson, who was seen on stage, uh, discuss the deep cultural importance of this event. So I went to it thinking I would like it. Um, and, uh, and as I say, rapturous reviews, it's going to win an Oscar and my God, is it boring? It is so boring. I mean, go, go, what, like it's Stevie wonder singing a couple of bad songs between when he was little Stevie wonder and when he started writing his great music as an adult, 
though he's incredibly impressive because in one at one point he's 19 years old he plays the drums and then at another point he plays the keyboards um and uh and as and as of course stevie wonder and then there's sly and the family stone and the fifth dimension and various other but it is so boring and then at one point nina simone um who is a who is a very uh, uh complicated uh uh figure nina simone uh with a lot of mental health problems and other things reads a poem by a friend of hers that says we should go kill white people and blow up all the, and blow up buildings, um, which uh, Questlove keeps in, uh, uh, which I think is an act of honesty to keep it in though. Of course we're supposed to celebrate it because it's, Oh my God, it sounds so contemporary. She sounds like someone in black lives matter now, but I mean, basically like all concert movies in my experience, a little of this goes a long way. And that my review of this would be, there was a concert in a park. There were some concerts in a park in 1969, and some of the numbers were good, and other and the other numbers were bad. But why why does it have to be black Woodstock? This is the thing that 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 gets me annoyed. Why not just have it be what it was? Why why the comparison? Why the, the I think because that the, it was the, the same summer. It was the right, same oh, okay. summer. So so Woodstock was July 1969, and this was July and August 1969, and so. But there are interesting, like, games played. So, like, Woodstock was half a million people hit this field, right, in, 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 in upstate New York or in the Catskills. Not to, not, to, not to push Abe to talk about anything in the Catskills. But so in the Catskills, there were 500,000 people doing drugs and all of a sudden it was this, like, insane event, right? And then there's this event, which they say 300,000 people attended. But that's very fishy. Because it's like there were seven concerts and people came to this park and who knows, like who knows how many people were there. They're adding up all the people who might conceivably have been in this park. Like there looks like there are like three or 4,000 people in the park listening to the concert. Everyone's like, oh, it was so moving. I saw, I mean, again, I, I don't mean to be like, like flippant, but, but it's sort of like you have these acts. It's like, and we looked out and we saw these faces beautiful black faces and they're all there and they're so beautiful it's so beautiful and all that and it's like okay i i accept that it's not you know it's like a, a middle class families really hot but they're there listening to great music or you know whatever uh but i mean it's harlem so like what's so amazing about seeing a lot of black faces in a park in harlem like that'd be like saying oh my god i was there there was a concert in jerusalem and there were all these jewish faces i don't know well but that's the thing it's the valorization of what for the people at the time who attended they wouldn't have spoken of it in those terms is is my is my so that the way and we've talked about how documentaries manipulate history in a way that makes it uh, palatable to whatever narrative but my question is why this particular narrative at this time why not you know you could look at that concert from a lot of different angles but this is a kind of quasi grievance angle of like well they excluded us from there although you know yeah. Jimi hendrix did but, perform at woodstock yeah. but like what the the, and, the and subtext and sly and the family stone right and so but yeah. the subtext is somehow there was an exclusion but we yeah. made our own amazing you know thing uh, apart from that because we we're excluded yeah. but there was not official exclusion i mean it's that grievance it's the kind of grievance overlay yeah. that i think is frustrating yeah. no, it was like it was obviously like a really nice summer event in new york a free concert organized by the city in a you know in a park at 122nd and fifth. Uh, and, and, and it was great. And you could walk from your house and go there and then, you know, see all these acts do a lot of stuff. And, and, and this is, you know, it was cut. Yeah. But, but sort of to 
the politic that yeah, was a political it was a political event it was actually part of some kind of black is beautiful black power moment at the time also you know and um but it was a, it was a different it had a different spirit yeah and everything wasn't simply related to you know sort of like what whites had versus what blacks had like this is the whole point about the black power movement was we don't need white people. That was, that was part of it was it's kind of empowerment message that we have our, you know, we have our own ways. We have our own folk culture. We have our own music. This is ours. We're beautiful, right? Black is beautiful. And that, that is a different message from, you know, black life in America is intolerable and awful. And you were denying us every possible advantage of being an American through your, uh, white supremacy. It's just weird. Like, but, 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 Generally speaking, I'm also sort of interested in the critical reaction because it's fine. You know, I mean, I, I found it boring. I well, find I most. <clears throat> I, 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 I didn't watch it specifically because I, it's not that I find all concert movies boring. The outdoor concerts of that era, those movies are ponderous because they're, yeah. they're too big. The sound's always terrible. There's too much chaos <laughs> going on. Yeah. And they're so full of like, you know, whatever the acts are, this black or white, they're so full of like all this, like, you know, gobbledygook about the times and and whatever else. And they're there. They are just these like ponderous, shapeless events. But I think something like like The Last Waltz, for example, is, is a good concert movie. So Last Waltz is the last is the final concert in San Francisco of the band. Um I've, I, I have to confess, I found that pretty boring at the time. And then in 1976, and then I saw it again, and I found it pretty boring also. It's just like a lot of, but, you know, Woodstock, the documentary, what was interesting about Woodstock is that half the documentary isn't about what's going on on the stage. It's about what's going on among these, you know, lunatics who, who went there and then are behaving, you know, are, are on, you know, are on LSD and, jumping into mud puddles and there are no bathrooms and it's disgusting and, and all of that. And we're on the one hand, it's supposed to be a celebration of this, you know, incredible youth culture. And on the other hand, it sort of tells the truth about just how deranged sixties youth culture was, you know, at, at the same moment, as was true of like, um, give me shelter, which is the males brothers documentary about Altamont. Again, what's, what's, what's interesting about it is not what's going on on stage. I mean, a lot of it is really not what's going on on stage being the, but this is mostly, you know, just sort of like lots of numbers. And the point about them in this case is that they're kind of second rate, (laughs) They're kind of second-rate numbers. Like probably the two best songs are are the Fifth Dimension singing Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, which is kind of a weird song to be performing, you know, in in Mount Morris Park at a Black Power concert since it was by you know the guys who wrote Hair, and and Sly and the Family Stone singing Everyday People. Um, and then there's a lot of other stuff that's like the second-rate versions of things. Uh, that, you know, second rate performances by first rate performers, uh, except Gladys Knight and the Pips who are pretty amazing also. And she was so young and she looks so fantastic now. Um, Gladys Knight, like it's amazing. It's 52 years later. Uh, anyway, but I'm more struck by the fact that if you now produce a cultural product about, uh, or dealing with or related to blackness, just as is true of all, you know, white, white critics everywhere 
uh, are disempowered from from saying anything that is not you know wildly positive. Uh, not that they don't think it, because I'm sure they think it, or I don't want to accuse them of disingenuousness. But if they didn't think it, they wouldn't say it anyway, because the 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 potential cost of being being negative about something so important would be too high. Anyway, or tell you what, guys, it's on Hulu. If you get Hulu, it's free. Watch it for half an hour. Maybe I'm wrong. People like it. I don't know. I mean, I don't like concert movies, so that's maybe it's my weakness. This was going to be short. Now it's run long because I'm just a blabbermouth. Um, so I apologize for that. Noah will be back on, on Monday. We're going to miss Christine a couple days next week, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, Noah will be back, and we will be back with you. I have, hope you have a wonderful weekend and that it stops raining if you're where you, where you are. Um, right now it's pouring where I am. And for Abe Christine and the absent Noah, I'm John Pudhortz. Keep the candle burning.